Hi everyone, it's Natasha Mascarenas. I'm jumping in really quickly here to say one, I am super excited for you guys to listen to this conversation. Marianne is taking over Equity Wednesday for this week and she did a great job interviewing GGV's Hans Tung. Number two though, there is a little bit of technical issues. The audio quality was not up to our usual standard. Thank you for understanding. We hope you enjoy the conversation anyways and I promise there are some really great gems. Let's listen in. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Marianne Acevedo. I'm filling in for Natasha Mascarenhas. Big shoes to fill, but I'm excited to be here. This is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, talk about their work, and unpack the rest. Today, I'm very excited to say we're talking to Hans Tung, managing partner at GGV Capital, who focuses on early stage investments across the global digital economy ecosystem. Hans also oversees GGV's DE&I initiatives, as well as co-hosting his own podcast, Evolving for the Next Billion. Welcome to the show, Hans. Happy to have you here. Thank you for having me, Marianne. It's always a pleasure to see you. Yeah, likewise. So today we're going to talk about a few things, including the investment landscape, present and future, lessons that startups can learn from layoffs, and what companies can do to keep themselves relevant, even during a downturn. So... We talked not that long ago, actually, Hans, it was just a few months back, and obviously the environment has changed even since then, but at the time you were telling me that you felt like 2023 could be the year of down rounds. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, well, back in 2022, right after the war broke out in Ukraine, we started seeing volatility in supply chain, volatility in um, commodity prices, and macro environment changed dramatically with a rising interest rate, rising inflation rate, and China was still in lockdown. So we start seeing some of our public portfolio, their stock prices showing uh, correction. And within our own portfolio, we saw sort of consumer spending sort of go down for consumer-facing companies over a period of the next six months. We start seeing that happening to some of the enterprise spending being slowed down and impact the enterprise portfolio as well. So we're not special in that sense. A lot of um, what's happening in venture, tech venture market, and their portfolios all got impacted as well. So given what we have learned from 2008, we started actively encouraging our portfolio as early as uh, end of Q1, early Q2 last year to start preparing for what's coming, what's ahead. Obviously, many of them heard from us in March, April 2020 timeframe, and that turned out to be a huge boost for digitization and acceleration of digitization around the world. So some of the founders obviously were trying to figure out if any headwind that they see is temporary or something that they need to embrace. But given our experience before, despite what we saw with the um, in 2020, we knew 2022 could be truly different. And a lot of our companies started thinking ahead about how to preserve cash. One of the things we we'll advised our companies back in Q2 last year, the point of view was um, see if you can do 24 months, if not 36 months. So we get the account at the end of Q2 last year, and roughly 78% of our portfolio by value have cash runway of 24 months or more at that point in time. Somewhere between 60 65% of portfolio value, portfolio by value, and cash runway of 36 months or more. We encourage our portfolio even today to keep at least 18 months, ideally 24 months of cash runway on the balance sheet, obviously the more the better. And that, that's something that not as easy for founders to, or even young VCs, 
uh, wrong table to recognize that we're no longer in this sort of growth mindset. We're in this sort of cash preservation kind of mode. Because if you can last longer than your competitor, you're more likely to wait wait out this uh, period of downturn. No one can predict how long this world exists. If you look at what happened um, in 2000 and 2008, each took about 36 months um, before the economy to bounce back. And for the stock market, it took about 18, 24 months or so. 2000 a little bit longer, 2008 a little bit shorter. They look back even further when in, in a period we see high inflation rate and high interest rate, the most comparable will be in the early 1980s. I remember that's when I had, you know, moved to California from Taiwan in uh, 1983, and it's, the economy was just slow. And it, it wasn't until the 90s came and the rise of the internet went down low, that changed uh, a lot of things and globalization took over at that point in time to make it a lot easier for uh, growth to happen. So we're mindful of the lessons we learned in the past. Obviously, history doesn't always repeat itself, but there's definitely a lot of similarities and lessons we learn from and seeing and how our founders get through this time period. Yeah, I mean, you had mentioned, though, that for companies that are starting to look ahead and deciding that they do want to go ahead and raise some more capital, that raising at a down round is better than running out of cash. <laughs> so I think that, you know, it's great that you're advising them to be more conservative with their cash. Obviously, this was a huge problem in 2021 and 2022, where so many companies were burning cash at a very rapid rate and unable to keep up in terms of, of revenue. So clearly, there are going to be some people or some companies that need to raise. And so down rounds, not an evil word, not an evil phrase in your opinion still? That's correct. One of my one of the things I like to mention in the board meeting is that 100% zero is still zero. So it's, um, we all are mindful of the addition to ourselves, to our stakeholders, to our employees, as investors, and so forth. But most importantly, companies to survive, to have a chance to build something massive uh, later. So download is part of the necessary evil that you have to be able to be comfortable facing uh, in the market uh, like this. We had a teacher, Bruce Fell, who was a CFO of a public trade company, Doma, our most recent founders and leaders talk. And he said something extremely insightful. He said that during the bull market, it's important to have that growth mindset because you want to stay ahead of a competitor and continue to grow and grow faster in the market and so that you'll be recognized both internally and externally. But at the same time, uh, in a market like this, that framework has shifted to cash preservation. And you want to be around with your competitor out of cash or employees uh, that are leaving them and joining you. So you want to constantly be thinking about uh, how to do scenario planning. So it, to be sophisticated, uh, he mentioned that for Dono, they had nine scenarios they planned for different kind of macro conditions and factors. So if something happened externally or behind the business, they kind of know exactly which is the nice scenario need to get to. This way, they can really kind of think through what needs to be done. So it's a lot more than yes or no, high or low, but figuring out what are the different conditions that will affect different kind of outcome and response from, from the team, you know, to deal with the, uh, the scenario that's at hand. So if something happened, that's great. This is a uh, scenario three we're in now. Something else happened, now we're going to scenario six. And that's an amazing way to have a development discipline to be able to apply ahead. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things we talked about is that your pace of investing as a firm definitely slowed down last year. And I think that was on par with many other VC firms who have taken a step back and they're being more cautious with their investments. Do you anticipate that to continue in 2023 and overall and then and for GGV? And in particular, of course, you know, I'm going to be asking about fintech because that's my favorite subject. Sure. And that's a good question. I mean, a lot of people think about sort of um, pace from standpoint 
for every fund that we're managing, um, that diversification of time is important. Point one obviously was a, a fast growth year, so some of the funds um, end up investing all their money in the most recent fund in one year. And uh, when you do that, you you don't get the benefit of diversification of time. And so we try to have um, two, two and a half year kind of pace uh, what we do in the bull market, close uh, more, more two, two years or under. In a period like this, it ends up being more uh, two and a half years, if not more. This way, we get the benefit of uh, diversification of time, but still investing every year. So as a result of that, uh, we'll look at what will happen in 2022. Our pace falls 50% off to our investing pace in 2021. But we're still investing versus some, somewhere else who may not be investing uh, at all in 2022. So our job is figuring out, staying in the market, and always be there for the amazing founders with amazing vision that we want to support and back. So we start to stay engaged, even if I would adjust the pace of the fund from time to time, given with a macro risk. Again, in terms of scenario planning, we can shorten or elongate the duration of the fund, you know, give us the best diversity in the time. Yeah, so far this year, I have covered a number of M&As in the fintech space. This is not entirely unexpected. Many, many people were predicting this would happen, considering that the IPO market has pretty much dried up. What do you think? Are you surprised by all this M&A? Do you think we're going to see even more of it as the months go on this year? I think you definitely will see more M&As. As companies think about whether they want to stay um, stand alone, or they think that one plus one is greater than two. They would uh, explore options. The example I'm thinking of it may not be in fintech directly, but I was on the board of Poshmark, and it was uh, sought after by a neighbor from uh, South Korea, and ended up acquiring Poshmark for over 1.6, 1.7 billion dollars. So we do know that in this time period, the strategics uh, are thinking. Some of them are thinking ahead with cash on their balance sheet to make the right acquisitions. That in, in a bull market, they may not have a chance to do so. And I always feel that the companies are not sold, they're bought. So it's having the active dialogue with strategic through good and bad time, just stay in touch. You never know what happens. And those investments in relationship go a long way to give you a lot more options when you want them. What about this generative AI craze? I feel like it's everywhere right now. How do you see this impacting the startup world and fintechs? As well, do you think it's going to penetrate this space too? Yeah, I mean, with the research chat GPT, you see that we see a lot more applications of that, and the version four will be even more robust than version three. So there's definitely a lot of things happening in many sectors, and I think fintech will be you know, impacted as well. So we already seen it happening in tech, uh, in commerce, uh, in content publishing. So I think more will be coming. Um, in the last decade would be the decade of fangs and then uh, the rise of the Chinese internet giants. I think this coming decade, a lot will be driven by AI in a way that uh, people thought may be possible back in 2015. But deep mind, you know, won that uh, goal game. But um, now it's where it's a lot more exciting in the acceleration of uh, the small cup. And what about the crypto space? I mean, obviously, 2022 was a very difficult year for crypto. What do you see happening there in 2023? Well, unlike uh, generative AI, the strategics are very active there. You see Microsoft and you see oh, their moves with OpenAI will prompt other uh, big strategics for their response. And it's just a matter of time. So versus that, um, I almost feel that it's the next fall. Uh, that's uh, forming. And with um, crypto, yes, it's, it's, it's a massive correction. But at the same time, the underlying logic for blockchain is still there. The need for to fly to safety with a at least somewhat decentralized currency is still there. 
as well. So I feel that it's either with crypto, it's either too hot or it's uh, too damned. So it's still in the area we'll look at uh, for investments and find the best teams that we can click with to be able to help them to scale their business over time. So when it's too hot, we worry about the bubble and now we feel like it's uh, over penalized and there's still 15 billion interesting companies and pools that can help the ecosystem uh, to scale. Yeah. So in the crypto space, obviously, we saw a lot of layoffs over the past few months. And this has not just been exclusive to crypto. Unfortunately, we've seen, what, tens of thousands of layoffs in the tech space over the past year or so. One of the things we talked about last time was that you were saying that this could start spilling over into Fortune 500 companies as well. All these layoffs could mean different things for startups. For one, there's more talent available for those that are in a position to hire, right? They All of a sudden, there are people that may have been not at all interested in working for a startup at one point, suddenly much more open to it. And also, I know we know, like, for example, we were baffled by things like Microsoft, you know, investing so much money into open AI just days after announcing massive layoffs. So would love to just hear your thoughts on all these layoffs that are happening, what lessons startups can take away from them. Just to get your perspective, because I know you were you were in a sorry you were on a podcast last year. It was titled "Finding Success and Failure." Right. So I feel like this is a topic that that you've thought about. Right. If we go around in two thousand with the first internet sort of bubble bursted, a lot of talent that learned quite a bit from the early stage of the internet ended up joining a lot of offline economy companies, and that usher in more receptivity to adopting new technologies in Fortune 1000 companies all over the world throughout the 2000s. This time, a lot of the talent that has unfortunately been let go in the last uh, six to nine months are most of them, and many of them, I would say most, but many of them will even find jobs within the next one month or two months. So you can tell there's still a lot of growth and demand for good talent around the world, even in the developed countries like US and Western Europe. So. Even if it had not been easy to deal with uh, these layoffs, many companies try to be as uh, helpful as they can to help their employees find new jobs. And I know a lot of VC firms, including ourselves, are doing our part to share this list with our portfolios. Companies that are able to hire the talent in time like this or upgrade their talent are going to have a better chance of coming out stronger for their stakeholders. And we also see that. Even if the Fortune 1000 companies start facing some of the layoffs as well, that also means that there will be opportunities even for them to upgrade the tech talent from the tech community that we deal with every single day. So whenever there's some uh, sort of crisis and challenges, there are also opportunities for talent to share what they've learned from a big company to small company or from small company to big company so that that sense of entrepreneurship and creativity and innovation continue. And back in 2000 and 2008, both times, we see a lot of talent flow from developed countries to developing countries as well. You look at, take FinTech example, probably Africa is the one place, one region in the world that had more FinTech investments in 2022 versus 2021. That's the that in the markets that are underdeveloped, regardless of where they are economy, there's a lot of demand and growth for tech innovations. So looking to work globally remotely there's going to be a lot more opportunities than before as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. And one of, one of the things I'm really curious about is your thoughts on the lessons that specifically startups can take and in terms of making sure that they're still relevant, even in a downturn, and just shifting their mindset in terms of just being focused on growth at all costs to a product-led mindset where they're building something that is 
going to be relevant no matter what the economy, a must-have versus a nice-to-have product. Right. Some of the metrics we've heard about companies to think about, of course, enterprise or consumer, is that this can you get your PS score up uh, for fintech companies, anything over 60 will be amazing. You, know, you wouldn't just invest in a product and customer experiences, not just for growth and growth saying to deliver a superior interaction experience with your customers and consumers so that your stickiness actually increases during this time period. During the go-go time, it's very easy to focus on growth and figure out, figure out different ways to grow at. And you mentioned the effectiveness of that uh, as much as possible. But then in time like this, it's much more important to focus on renewal rates. And uh, Bruce Fell had a great advice that whatever you're getting for in 2022 for 2023, think that you will get 5% less. If your new was 90%, think that it will be at best 85%. So you plan ahead and test the hell of that sensitivity ahead of time. So you expect things to be worse. Therefore, you're much more willing to be more conscious of your cash flow management and then uh, raise the level of, of service or usefulness to your consumers so that you can deliver similar uh, sort of renewal rates and, and usage rates than before, if not better. And these are things that we encourage our work company to focus on and uh, have growth become much more organic or product led. And therefore, the retention of those users that come now will be stickier than, than before. And the previous um, the users that you have had already should enjoy the, the additional work you put in to make the product better as well. And in time like this, that's extremely needed just to stay at uh, sort of the same level of, of uh, retention as, uh, as, as you would be before. Yeah, one of the things I meant to mention earlier is you've been in this industry for two decades. You've seen a lot of cycles. You were named to the Forbes Midas list 10 consecutive years from 2013 to 2022, most recently ranking number six. You've invested in 18 unicorns, including Affirm, Airbnb, Coinbase, and Divi Homes. I'm just curious when you're evaluating new investments after all that you've seen and experienced over the years, what are some of the main criteria that you look for? Or what is the some of the main criteria that you use in terms of evaluating whether or not you want to invest in a company at this stage? Yeah, I've done this for two decades uh, and seen some of the successes that I've seen in the last uh, 10 years. It's still come down to the founders in the market. Is it you back on a horse or a track or a jockey? Well, all three are important. The track, the, the 10, the 10 determine how big the outcome you can be. And within that, you, you have developed a thesis to figure out what area or sector at the time will be much bigger than it is now over the next five to 10 years. And we try to simply invest early, we try to have a long term perspective and things much as, as uh, further down, you know, through a 10 year window as much as possible, despite of the, the short term volatilities. And at the same time, we also try to think about the founder and the team that he or she is building. It's the best founders are the ones that just know their product or their customer extremely well and know that what's the right hook they can have to get the attention of their initial customer. And they try to make those customers, they don't try to overdo it from early on, try to do everything, but they focus on what's one thing I can do for this group of customer so they don't just like me, but they love me. Always mm-hmm. the Brian Chesky's saying, and I'll paraphrase here. Yeah, it's much better to have, you know, a thousand people love you than a million people like you and know on you. And the level of intensity of interaction of the the a thousand, ten thousand who love you are so important because you turn them into evangelists for mm-hmm. the, the product you're building, whether it's enterprise or consumer. And spending time keep on iterating on that until you have that, you know, a thousand, ten thousand customers who absolutely love you. And that is a very hard thing to do 
and it's easy for you to put money on growth and see, look how many users are off today. And that's an easier metric to get people uh, around you excited, but it's not as long lasting. So we look for founders who are who can see strategically and operate locally and systematically, and then have that leadership ability to rally and build a team uh, around them. If you have that strategic thinking, that short-term focus on operation excellence every single day, and have that leadership quality to drive people to work with you, those are the three most important traits that we see uh, in a founder. Obviously, the underlying sort of thing underneath all that is someone who has a sort of learning mindset. They don't have to learn from their own mistakes. They can learn from other people's mistakes to be able to iterate and improve. And the, the two people kind of align who combine these four elements extremely well. One is um, Brachowski from Airbnb. The other one is Max Lechen from a firm. Both of them are special in their own way. Max is like the perfect fintech uh, founder, extremely strategic, extremely thoughtful, and be able to build a team around him that can focus on execution, where he can work on product and, uh, and, and strategy. And Brian Chesky has a charm and the vision to get people to want to be a part of his mission to make people's experiences around the world much more friendlier than before. So both our founders are different, but they both know their market and their customer extremely well. So both have uh, some kind of a founder market fit or founder product fit. And then that's what's extremely interesting about meeting founders like that and want to be watching and be part of their journey. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think one of the the things we've seen over the past year and a half or so is a lot of the missteps or stumbles from companies that have raised a lot of money at, at very high valuations do relate to them just trying to do too much, right? And going into too many different directions. Because it's kind of that, you know, goes to that old adage, like if you try to do too many things at once, you're not going to do any one thing very well. So I can totally see your point there. And it makes sense. You know, it's seems like it's better to focus on doing something very, very well before trying to do 10 different things just okay. Yeah, I mean, a lot of founders are type A personalities. That's why they want to be founders. They want to be in control, they want to build things, and want to actualize their, their vision. And at the same time, it's easy to feel like you're missing out. It means sort of we all uh, high achieving, so it's easy to commit ourselves against our peers. And the founders do the same thing. And they worry that their competitors are getting ahead, raising more money, hiring more people, generating more buzz and press. Uh, so is, when you're living in it, it's harder to think right. beyond that uh, immediate uh, sort of noise around you, to think strategically ahead and have that patience and be able to just pace and space things out and do this systematically is not an easy thing. And that's why it's such an important trait that we see in great founders. Definitely, definitely. So I want, I want to ask you just some other kind of fun questions. You've been a VC for so long. I think you were a financial analyst prior to that, right? Prior before. I saw my career as time giants on Wall Street for Merrill Lynch, you know, back in 1993-94. Right. So if you weren't a VC today, what do you think your job would be? Uh, I, will, I would love to be a, uh, when I was young, I would love to be a, a general manager of a uh, sports team, whether it's in football or basketball. Uh, uh-huh. I, I love sports, uh, especially team sports. Watching how championship teams get built and the team have to you know, lose their share and learn their lessons along the way to eventually get to the playoff, get to the championship game, and then we'll do that consistently. And it's just fascinating to see the best um, quarterbacks, the best defense, defensive lines, the best um, point guard, the best um, wing players uh, rise to the occasion and rally their teammates to, to win the ultimate 
championship trophy. So it, it's just it's a gratifying feeling when you see everything clicking and working. And that's those are the kind of things I love being a, a VC a board member to help our founders grow and build our own team and scale our own business at, at GGD. Yeah, it's sort of like a Mark Cuban, right? Owns the Mavericks. Yes, that was uh, yeah. Mavericks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this question, I'm going to let you, I'm going to ask two different things. I'll let you pick which you want to answer. What would you say is the best and worst advice that you've received in your career? Or what is some of the best or worst advice you've actually given in your career? Mm. The best advice uh, I ever received, I think, was from watching, reading uh, Bill Walsh, uh, legendary 49ers and Sanford Cardinal football coach, on his way of building his system, a test-heavy West Coast offense, and how do you be a championship team? And that, his books and books on Pat Rally, those are things that inspire me about what it takes to be a great teammate, be a great leader, and how to have a chance to consistently win. And like I said, you know, I was only 14, 15, uh, 16 year old at a time, you know, watching success uh, of the Lakers and the, and the 49ers. It's just very impressive to see what, how they were able to do that. And that made me reflect what kind of person I want to be in the future. So what is it at GGV or working in one of inside one of the boardrooms? Um, I always think of, you know, what will Pat Riley, or what would Phil to Jackson, what would Bill Walsh, uh, what would these legendary coaches do in my, my time like this, and how to build alliances with everyone on the table so we can give the CEO and the team the best advice we can. So those were some of the best advice I received is how to be a leader from um, reading and watching uh, sports. The best advice I ever were given I think that when COVID uh, hit, Airbnb's volume of booking went from you know billions of dollars to zero overnight. Right. I remember being on a another media's podcast, and uh, there were four speakers on it on Zoom, and then I was probably the only one who felt bullish on Airbnb, thinking that in a time like this when you cannot travel anymore, staycation anywhere around fifty two hundred miles where home is would be a place that people would want to go, not Paris, but you know, somewhere in a, in a 50 to 200 mile radius instead for you to get away. And so I thought it maybe has the most flexible supply chain. If they, a team can uh, focus on execution, you know, tough time like that, and despite their own sort of the own situation and so forth, to be able to, to overcome all that, they can still build a very viable business. And I think Brian Chesky texted me afterwards, thanking me for support of Airbnb in time like this. And that's such a small uh, thing that we did for them on the air. Versus the hard work that every team did to be extremely sympathetic and empathetic with the host, uh, as well as their guests, and strike the right balance to help all sides to deal through a time like that. So that that's something that I will always remember and cherish uh, with me for the rest of my life. Okay, so we're getting close to running out of time, but can you quickly just tell me what do you want to see happen in 2023? We worry that the current headwind that we, we start seeing in uh, 2022, maybe a multi-year have Obviously, no one knows for sure. But at a time like this, whatever we can, then we have, you know, founders, leaders programming in place. We have a platform team uh, with uh, help in BD and marketing and uh, talent search and so forth. We want to be there for our founders. So spending time working with our founders, see how we can be helpful and participate in their next rounds. What will be the things that we want to do and want to focus on? One of the things that one of the new initiatives we launched this year is uh, the Embedded FinTech 50. 
where we select together with 56 other uh, amazing VCs who work together to pick 50 companies. 25 of them are in early stage, which means they raise less than $100 million uh, in total money raised. About 15 of them are mid-stage, which means they raise about $150 million total to date. And then 10 uh, late-stage companies with, uh, where they raise more than $250 million in total uh, money raised. And feature these uh, 50 companies that's coming out later today. Uh, we hope that they will get more recognition, that they will value by you know, 57 VCs who are all fintech uh, investors and hope that uh, more people pay attention to them and that they can continue to highlight the good work and the fintech revolution that's still ongoing to make the world that we were in much more efficient and better than before. Yeah, embedded fintech is definitely hot. I don't see that changing anytime soon. Well, Hans, Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you. You've got so much valuable insight to share with, from your experience over the years, and I appreciate your, your taking the time to share it with all of us. Well, thank you for having me on your show. I enjoyed it. And before we go, socials, where can we find you, Hans? How can people find you out there? Yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. You can also email me at Hans at ggbc.com. What's your handle on Twitter? Uh, Hans Stone. Okay. Simple and easy. So my whole name. Great. All right, Hans, thank you so much again. Really enjoy talking with you as always. And for our listeners, we'll talk to you again on Friday. Bye-bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development. And Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back next week.